Hello and welcome to another episode of the IWP Files, the Alumni Spotlight series, where we delve into the successes, the challenges, the advice, and the lessons learned from a national security graduate's perspective. My name is Katie Bridges. Today, I have the pleasure of hosting Saba Sitar, one of the first graduates of our Doctor of Statecraft and National Security program in 2022. Saba, it's great to talk with you today. So Saba, you are originally from the Indian subcontinent, is that correct? Yes, um, I spent the better half of my formative years in Bangladesh, and my family traveled quite extensively. And um, our family base is now spanning across three different countries and two continents across the world. Oh my goodness. Well, I was going to ask how you got interested in international affairs, but I'm guessing that perhaps um, all this travel led to that? Oh, it certainly has. Um, it's also because of all the wonderful instructors I've had since high school. Um, you know, being introduced to the subject matter just made me appreciate, you know, different cultures and, you know, distinct societies that we have um, and that we continue to work with. And I understand you were valedictorian at your high school, which is really cool. And so skipping ahead, I know that you're currently working as an Asia-Pacific analyst with Crisis 24, um, which for any listeners who are not familiar, is a leading risk management, crisis response, consulting, and global protective solutions firm. Um, so Saba, I'd love to hear just what a day in the life is like um, at work. Absolutely. A typical day at work usually differs. I work as an open source Asia Pacific security analyst for Crisis 24. And Crisis 24 was recently acquired by the world's largest private security company in 2020. And I joined the company in um, April of last year. An IWP faculty member also happens to be one of the board of directors of my parent company, which is fantastic. Now, as the primary representative of the Asia-Pacific team in the Western Hemisphere, I am typically tasked with monitoring and analyzing real-time developments, as well as tracking long-term trends that can pose a threat to business operators and other clients, chiefly in the, um, excuse me, in the critical infrastructure sector. I also examine potential issues at the tactical and strategic levels, while coordinating any developments that may match the company's severity thresholds with the ops department. These analytical pieces are produced in various comprehensive forms, and it helps to mitigate tasks, um, excuse me, risks, and typically go up to folks at the C-suite level. That's really interesting. Um, so what is it like? Are you usually meeting with clients? Are you at your desk doing research? What does it look like on a day-to-day -day basis? I know you said it's different every day. It's all of the above. So if there is a special briefing that's requ requested, it will happen, you know, on an ad hoc basis. Um, you usually get a little bit of time to prepare for that. But on a day-to-day -day basis, there's a lot of um, real-time research and analytical work that's being spearheaded. And like I said, um, depending on how it's meeting the company's threshold requirements, you know, we'll look to um, mitigate those disruptions, like I said, real time. And so it's very time sensitive work and requires a lot of attention to detail. 
That's very interesting. And I see that you received you, that you earned the highest tactical intelligence alert output rate um, in on your team. So congratulations. Yes. So that's based out of our Annapolis office um, on the day-to-day basis. I actually coordinate with folks from four different locations across the world, and that's Singapore, the UK, Cape Town, and the Annapolis office, which is where I'm based out of. Oh, that's really neat. So your team is very international. Very. So tell me about your journey to arrive in this position professionally. You know, how'd you get here? Uh, Well, it's certainly been a long journey. um, And it goes back to the time I began the MA program here at IWP. The practical component of the curriculum is really what's enabled me to create a foundational basis for examining geopolitical issues through an empirical lens. I've learned a great deal from our faculty members and the student community with, you know, real life anecdotes and through seminar style discussions in smaller sized classrooms. It's also helped me to create a sense of appreciation for new um, career opportunities that I never really knew about. And then the doctoral program is really what reinforced these interests and enabled me to establish actual subject matter expertise in the Indo-Pacific. I was granted a great deal of academic freedom where I was able to focus on specific areas of concern and in some cases develop my own courses with the instructor when a specific class was not offered. The academic freedom has also helped me quite a bit in uh, sort of translating and articulating complex geopolitical issues to non-technical audiences and has the and it's made the overall transition into the workforce much easier. Wow. So how did you how did you choose to go to grad school if that's kind of where this journey started? Well, it was completely unexpected with how um, I was introduced to the IWP graduate school programs. It was through an IWP alum who was an academic mentor back at George Mason, where I did my undergrad. And basically what had happened was I was pursuing a minor in Intel, and my professor had requested me to attend a career seminar um, where uh, you know, we would receive extra credit for an assignment. And so I went to this uh, career seminar slash fair, and I met with some representatives from the school, and they introduced the concept of, you know, scholar practitioners and all of that neat stuff, which other schools did not provide. So it was an intriguing step forward for me and has been one of the best decisions I've ever made. Well, I'm so glad it worked out so well. Um, And I I know that you have other professional experience as well, even before grad school. Has that been helpful to you in your current role or in kind of setting you up for success? Absolutely. A lot of the work that you undertake, however unrelated it may be to the field you want to specialize in long term, can be translated into a different work setting. So being able to, you know, be a good team player and to understand circumstances that may be beyond your control or, you know, uh, mitigating stovepipe-related challenges across multiple time zones. All of that can sort of help you become a more mature person and to be able to tackle things 
better on as you're, you know, thinking on your own two feet and so forth. And I know that in addition to your current job, you're also doing a lot of different writing for various outlets and journals. Um, are you are you continuing that even after graduation? Yes. So I'm working with multiple different outlets, um, including um, think tanks, prestigious news media outlets, and potentially a book publishing outlet as well. Um, I'd like to see the three um, hundred page monographs that I worked on during the doctoral program to be published into many books. And so the idea of that in and of itself has been quite exhilarating. I'd love to hear more about the the three big papers. For anyone who's not familiar, our Doctor of Statecraft and National Security requires, um, th- instead of one big uh, dissertation, um, it requires three also lengthy papers, but they're not as long as a dissertation. And so it gives our professional doctoral students the opportunity to to focus on either different areas of you know different areas entirely or different aspects of the same issue. So Saba, I'd love to hear what you focused yours on. Absolutely. So I um, worked on three different interrelated topics about how the US can potentially use India as a strategic counterweight to China in the Indo-Pacific. And each of these papers look at different issues at hand and they you know employ a whole of government and integrated approach in you know tackling this new essential cold war that we're undergoing that's interesting well i hope they're able to get published thank um, you I would love to read them and so what what was it like to do the doctoral program right after graduating the ma program it was exciting and overwhelming all at the same time i didn't expect to dive right into the doctoral program after obtaining my MA degree, but because it was so new, I had this vision to be a part of the first graduating class and to grow simultaneously with the program. And you were. Congratulations. That's amazing. It was because of the health of the entire community, honestly. You know, we all worked together and whatever hurdle, you know, that came our way, we worked through it. Um, so it was wonderful. That's great. So on a day-to-day basis, do you use anything that you learned at IWP at work? I sure do. So the research I've conducted over the span of three years during the doctoral program essentially serves as the bedrock for the work I'm currently undertaking. It's been instrumental in tackling special projects with, you know, my regional team, and it actually makes a tangible operational level difference for top level businesses and other stakeholders in the Indo-Pacific. That's awesome. Um, what, what do you feel like is the biggest impact you've made so far at work, as much as you can share? Um, as much as I can share, um, there is a critical infrastructure company that is seeking to expand its operations into a very sensitive part of the Indo-Pacific. And I had to essentially run a scenario analysis for um, this company and sort of brief them on what the security implications would be amid a deteriorating a Sino-American rivalry in the priority theater. That's really interesting. What advice would you give to someone who's looking to get into your career path? I would recommend a couple of things. First, you can't walk into this career path 
thinking other people will potentially approach the same issue based on your, you know, real world experiences, we can't be ethnocentric. It's all about maintaining a balancing act. We're prone to work with folks from all walks of life. And it's important for us to sort of productively balance varying opinions and approaches. The second advice that I would recommend is to be enthusiastic and to clearly demonstrate your eagerness to learn. I strongly believe that these two traits are helpful when you're doing a job interview or networking. And it's certainly what helped me land my current gig. Um, It was recommended to me by a highly accomplished and humble female mentor from IWP. That's wonderful. For any new students who are joining the school, um, how can they make the most of their IWP education? My first advice would be don't be shy. IWP is a very special community. People are here from all walks of life and are service oriented. They are here to help you and provide unconditional support. And it's the ideal time to learn what interests you. Um, And, you know, it also provides excellent networking opportunities. After all, we have dedicated scholar practitioners who are at the top of this field and want to see their students succeed. That's awesome. Um, And is there anything you're doing differently at work as a result of your education? I know that's given you a lot of background knowledge and everything that I think the background knowledge that I um, acquired during my time at IWP was so practical that I look at the world for what it is, as opposed to conducting a normative assessment and um, looking at it for what it should be like, because it's important to understand that every society is different. What People want for, let's say, Afghanistan or Iraq or for any other country for that matter, does not work. It's through mutual interests and through, um, through you know, good values that we're able to create better partnerships and to make it a sustainable, you know, working relationship. So I think that has helped me to spearhead a lot of publications as a result and to be um, taken more seriously at work and so forth. Saba, did you use IWP career services when you were studying at the Institute? I sure did. And it's because of Mr. Derek Dorch that I'm essentially able to think on my own two feet. Um, Let me give you an example that really stands out. During the height of the pandemic, I started looking for a full-time job and had to navigate through multiple hurdles while I was enrolled in the doctoral program. And it was probably one of the worst times that you could look for work. So um, I reached out to Mr. Dorch, and he's someone who employs like multifaceted strategies with several pieces that sort of move in the background. And while I was searching for jobs in the field that had more time-consuming applications, I reached out to a placement agency to find a temporary gig. 
I was sort of demotivated at the time and didn't think it was possible for me to find something so quickly. So when the time came, I didn't know how to leave that temporary gig that I had just signed up for. And Mr. Dorch's advice to me was to um, give a three-week notice, but to also suggest possible replacement candidates. His advice worked out perfectly. An IWP student at the time was searching for a temp remote gig, and he ended up replacing me. I had trained him for a few days that had overlapped together, and it helped to, you know, establish a good working relationship with the placement agency, the nonprofit that we had worked for. And the best part out of all of this was the fact that one of my friends got a new job out of it. That's great, Saba. I'm so glad it worked out. Uh, So Saba, given that you're looking at the Indo-Pacific region all the time, um, tell us what you think about where our relations with the countries in this region are going in the future. Well, as the newly designated priority theater, we're seeing a lot more high-level diplomatic visits to the region. Um, We're seeing more of a tit-for-tat, you know, geopolitical campaign between the U.S. and China as each state is vying for more influence over each country. Um, And they're, you know, attempting to advance their own respective geostrategic agendas. Um, Just last week, the Secretary of State went to Tonga, a very remote uh, Pacific uh, island country that has about... um, 100,000 people. And then he went to the ANZUS states. This was in tandem to Lloyd Austin's visit to Papua New Guinea, where the US has secured a bilateral security deal. Um, It was a historic accomplishment. And he also visited Australia to spearhead a lot of, you know, different discussions, including uh, talking about the AUKUS deal. Now, while all of these high level engagements are impressive, The issue is we have neglected the region for a long time. So for a while, uh, you know, we're seeing this pattern develop in multiple areas. Um, In the Solomon Islands, China signed a historic security deal with the Solomon Islands. And this is something that enables an increased Chinese security presence if, you know, policymakers in Haniera uh, you know, see, perceive some sort of a threat to, you know, Chinese uh, related infrastructure. So that's the Belt and Road Initiative infrastructure, excuse me. And then another issue with that is the U.S. sort of acted more defensively and opened uh, reopened its embassy after three decades. And we, we're seeing similar patterns with other countries as well, where we're trying to, you know, gain more influence back after, you know, being bogged down with the wars in the Middle East for nearly two decades. So I think it's really important for the U.S. to remain very proactive through various instruments of national power beyond the use of military force, because Right now, what's happening is you're seeing a lot of grassroots level opposition, um, including in Papua New Guinea, where academics and youth activists and other you know, groups have come out and said, 
no, we do not want an increased U.S. security presence in the region, you know, and so I think what needs to happen is we need to sort of create a foundational level trust at the grassroots level through other uh, means of statecraft, including cultural and educational exchanges and so forth, in order to have a more sustainable uh, foreign policy in the region for generations to come. Again, in a lot of other areas where there has been dwindling American influence and has required more urgent um, U.S. involvement, that, you know, all of that makes sense. But what can we do to be more proactive and to sort of mitigate the opposition voices to sort of show that, no, look, the U.S. is actually a good, you know, regional power that is seeking to ensure unfettered access to airways and uh, waterways and all of that while we're trying to um, sort of contain and roll back Chinese influence in the region. That's really interesting, Saba. Well, I hope our country is able to move forward using all the instruments of power, as you mentioned, in a productive way. So Saba, what are you thinking of the future for yourself professionally? Well, my initial goal is to establish subject matter expertise for as long as I possibly can. It takes you a lifetime just to, you know, master learning about one subregion of the Indo-Pacific, and there are four. And the four subregions include Northeast Asia, Southeast Asia, South Asia, and the Pacific. Um, so my goal is to be realistic about each of these subregions and to recognize the distinct operational realities that come, you know, with its with each country and hegemon's, um, you know, set of strategic imperatives, um, history, and so forth. And then from there, my goal is to enact changes. Hopefully, one day at the policymaking level. Um, you know, while working with a lot of our distinguished faculty members, I was sort of inspired to look at uh, issues that are reached up to the National Security Council level. And uh, from there, I've sort of been tracking scholar practitioners from the field, including Lisa Curtis, who formerly served as the director for South Asian Affairs under the Trump administration. And so um, following into her footsteps is quite aspirational, but it's something I certainly strive toward. That's wonderful, Saba. Well, it's so exciting to hear about what you're doing and, um, you know, to hear a little bit about the region. Um, thank you so much for doing this interview with us. It was such a pleasure to speak with you. It's my absolute pleasure, Katie. Thank you so much for inviting me here today.